ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The latest labour force data from the ABS showed unemployment in South Australia's southeast region, that's the broader area around Mount Gambier, is at 2.7%, a record low. But locals with a disability say many businesses aren't inclusive in their hiring practices and won't consider making small changes to make them feel welcome. And it often starts at the interview stage. I couldn't even get in the door of the building and they didn't even have the courtesy to come out and say, look, sorry about that. We take a look at the benefits for employers when they broaden their range of potential candidates. We should always be trying to appeal to as many potential candidates as we can because that always makes our workforce stronger. It leads to better products and services because we're getting more perspectives from a range of different people. And we meet the freediver who struggled with a phobia of the ocean after his father died. Now, he's known around town as the man who saves people's precious items when they are accidentally dropped into the water. I couldn't hang out with friends at the beach. I couldn't swim for recreation. And now I have all that back. I'm Alex Simon, and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk Country, Perth. In South Australia's southeast, unemployment is at a record low, and businesses are struggling to find enough people to fill empty jobs. Local business leaders are being encouraged to consider overlooked communities, such as people with a disability, to help boost the workforce. But locals with a disability say many businesses aren't inclusive in their hiring practices and won't consider making small changes to make them feel welcome. Sam Bradbrook has this story. Mount Gambier's Ruth Mott has a lifetime of experience that would make her an attractive candidate for many jobs. The 62-year-old has been a farmer, a nurse and is a justice of the peace. But for the past five years, she's struggled to find work. It's very downhearting, it's frustrating You feel like you're inferior to everyone else and that they don't really give a damn, to be honest. Ms Mott was involved in an accident five years ago, leading to a severe spinal cord injury. She's now a paraplegic and uses a wheelchair. After taking some time to get used to living with disability, she tried to re-enter the workforce. I've looked for work. I've had a couple of opportunities where I've been really good on a phone interview, got through to an actual face-to-face. There's been three in Mount Cambio. The first one, I couldn't even get in the door of the building and they didn't even have the courtesy to come out and say, look, sorry about that. The second one was, well, sorry, you're not really suitable. The third one, he was brilliant. They made arrangements for me to get in They sort of rearranged where he was going to do the interview so that I could attend the interview. He was quite willing to adapt and alter things should I get the position. And he really quite made me feel like I was a person again. Unfortunately, I didn't get that position. Miss Mott's trouble finding work came as the unemployment rate in the southeast SA region, which includes the Limestone Coast, Riverland and Murraylands, has declined rapidly. It currently sits at 2.7%, the lowest since records began in September 1999. It's leading to widespread worker shortages in Mount Gambier, particularly in hospitality and tourism. 
Mount Gambier Chamber of Commerce Chair Candice Fennell says it's been a prolonged issue for employers. But she says there are people, often overlooked in the community, who want to work. Who else is out there that might be looking? And, and like I said, keeping a really wide lens on and being very open to different demographics, people that you might not have explored thinking about before, the transferable skills, people who may have a form of disability but still be able to work in the workforce. They're the types of people that we should be sort of tapping into as well as you know, our migrant community, there's lots of different avenues for businesses to try. The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare says Australians living with disability are twice as likely to be unemployed as those without. JFA Purple Orange Regional Project Officer Tessa Deek says it's a positive businesses are being encouraged to look at diverse candidates but she says it shouldn't take a worker shortage. We should always be trying to appeal to as many potential candidates as we can because that always makes our workforce stronger. It leads to better products and services because we're getting more perspectives from a range of different people and that experience makes such a huge difference into the day-to-day work that we do. And I think it's just really important to remember at the end of the day that people living with disability and people from all these diverse backgrounds can be excellent employees and really deserve to be considered for all roles. The new year brought some good news for Miss Mott, who is about to start casual work with JFA Purple Orange this week. She says it's made her feel young again. She now wants more employers to take serious steps to become more inclusive. Do it. Don't wait, don't think, well, maybe, don't just put it down as a piece of paper and have it thrown away in the cupboard. Do it, do some actions because you'll really benefit from it. Mount Gambier's Ruth Mott ending that story by reporter Sam Bradbrook. ABC Australia Wide. Australians with disability are also less likely to own a home than other members of the public. The Disability Advocacy Network Australia says many clients are spending up to 80% of their income on rent, leaving little room to save. It's calling on governments to consider shared equity arrangements to help more people get into the property market. Sale reporter William Howard has this story. Over the years, I've sort of thought about it, about being on a disability pension and not being employed for a number of years. It seemed like a bit of a, a pipe dream. After losing his sight at the age of six, Ben Grit's goal of owning his own home always felt out of reach. He's not alone. Al Gibbs from the Disability Advocacy Network of Australia says housing remains one of the top issues people with disability face every day. It's really unusual for people with disability to own their own homes. Living in regional Victoria, Mr Grit struggled to find workplaces that were willing to employ him over fears it would be too difficult to accommodate his needs. Ultimately, this impacted his ability to save for a home deposit. Unfortunately, it's just so hard to find work when you've got a disability in country areas. Eventually, Mr Grit gave up and pivoted to life as a self-employed ceramic pottery artist, even holding workshops for others with disability. Yeah, I've been running for about two and a half years now. It's really successful in providing an important social aspect for a lot of people who have disabilities. The success of his business meant Mr Grit was able to purchase a home in the small town of Lucknow, in Victoria's East. It's just so much up here. We've got the train line now, which is a really cheap and affordable means to access the city. Plus you've got all the the bush, the beaches, the lakes. 
It's no secret that Australia is in the midst of a housing crisis. Vacancy rates are at record lows, rental prices are at record highs, and for many residents, it has simply become too expensive to buy a home. During such a difficult time, Al Gibbs is asking Australians to spare a thought for those with disability. Our advocates tell us that housing is the second biggest issue that people with disability come and see them about, second only to the NDIS. Ms Gibbs says a lot of the organisation's clients are already spending 70 to 80% of their income on rent, leaving little room to save. Lots of people with disability don't have much money, so many of us rely on income support or work part-time. There's this huge employment gap for people with disability compared to non-disabled people. So what is the solution? Shared equity arrangements have been flagged by several advocacy groups as a way forward. Shared equity is an agreement in which the government makes a financial contribution towards the purchase of a property in exchange for a proportional interest or share in that property. We really propose that government come to the party and actually put down some guarantees around making sure that people could actually get into the market. Because if you've been paying 80% of your disability support pension to a disability support provider for a group home your whole life, how on earth would you save for a home deposit? That was L. Gibbs from Disability Advocacy Network Australia, ending that report by William Howard. Last year's cyclone Jasper has decimated fruit and vegetable farms in far north Queensland. Farmers are trying to rebuild, but it's not just the loss of produce costing them. Soil-borne diseases in floodwater are causing bio-nightmares, and damaged roads are making transport costs even more. Landline's Helena Bachkovsky filed this report. It was two weeks before Christmas and all through the north. Farmers were getting ready for a chance to change course. We're looking forward to two weeks off, Christmas and all that. So we fertilise our paddocks, get it all ready, ready for the new year to start, you know, nice green fruit. It was pretty much a waste, yeah, everything went under. The after effects have been long-reaching. Les Blennerhassett's trucking company carries fruit from the region and is one of the businesses brought to a halt by Jasper. We had a massive week the week before Sideman, probably the biggest week we've ever had between Tully and Inspire Crowell's cutting, cutting heavy to um, get the fruit in boxes, so that was really big. And then once Cyclone was crossing, everyone just stopped. It really affected the Tableland guys, because as soon as that crossed, we had no access to the Tablelands at all. Three ranches out, Palmerston, Gillies and Coranda, all closed when that Cyclone crossed. Ian, who prefers to be known as Mungrel, has been a truckie for 30 years. He says now the normal routes are closed, they are forced to drive up the Coranda range, which is slow and dangerous. It's hard for the B-doubles. They have to split everything up. You're not allowed to take B-double up the Grand Range, so it just makes it hard on everything. And You've got to keep dropping trailers, splitting trailers up and using fuel, paying extra wages, I suppose they are. So, yeah, it just turned into a nightmare, really. It adds up to an extra four and a half hours' travel. To cover the extra costs, the transport companies are now charging a levy. How much is that surcharge? It's $15 per pallet. So we're going to knock that on the head at the end of this month and if Palmerston opens mid-February, we'll just, we'll just wear the cost, you know, till, till that Palmerston opens and hopefully it stays open, yeah. So who's paying for that? It's, you know, the farmer pays all the time, so it's not, not a nice thing to do, but, you know, we've got to cover your cost and move on. One of those farmers is Joe Morrow, president of Far North Queensland Growers and a mango producer. Yeah, they look nice from afar, but when you get closer, you see all the marks. The big issue now is transport. As you know, the road infrastructure has come under a lot of pressure. We've lost the Palmerston Highway, which is a, 
a significant road. It takes 200 B-doubles per day. And, um, it, it did. It did, yes, that's right. And the big issue for a lot of farmers is this range levy, which has been put on by the transport company. We don't blame the transport companies anyway for that. But we do think uh, the, the government should take some issues to address that, that cost for, for, for the farmers because it's not something that came from the disaster in the sense on farm. It was the road infrastructure failing. Down the road at Skybury Papaya and Coffee Farm, the McLaughlin family was hit very hard. The result of the cyclone has seen production cut by over 60%. Staff have also suffered. The farm can employ up to 130 people, made up of travellers and locals. The transit staff have been let go, and they have scaled back from five full-time picking teams down to two. Can you recover from this? I mean, it's been a huge amount of losses. Yeah, it is. It's going to take a huge dent in the war chest to rebuild and to restructure back to the numbers that we were doing post-cyclone. But we've, this is far north Queensland, and we've been through other events, cyclonic, um, disease, pest, before. So uh, this is what we know, and... This is what we'll do. Papaya trees have a relatively short lifespan, with trees only fruiting commercially for a maximum of three years. Because of this, the farm has a healthy nursery. If you forgive me a Star Wars reference, is, is this the new hope? It is, yes. Yeah. So hopefully this will be our Jesus block. <laughs> this is the fourth block we've planted since Jasper. So we've got five acres here. We're putting in just over 6,000 plants and for a summer planting, we should be harvesting these trees in six to seven months. It's been just under two months since Cyclone Jasper hit Queensland, and most farms have cleaned up the worst of the damage. It's up here. That's it. That's the water height there. You can still see debris coming up here. Look. Water covered most of the Galati's farm. The house, packing sheds and machinery all went under as well as 12 months of grown fruit. But you wouldn't know it with the family spending most waking hours on clean-up. A lot of man hours, a lot of work, a lot of rubbish built up on this farm that all had to be picked up by hand and then all the trees had to be cleaned up manually, manual labour, that was the only way to get in it. So when it all comes down to it, everybody is charging a bit extra except for the farmer. Yeah. We're not getting any extra. Um, you hear on the radio, on the news or, you know... Farmers have been hit, you know, help them out, buy something. I've got to have it on the market for you to buy it. And if I can't pick it, you know what I mean, it's hard. You know, like I, I just touched that fruit there now and that just fell in my hands and you can see already. So that brown stain, it's just getting rotten from the bottom up here. And, that, and that's just up here. And the water level's reached here, so I don't know what's going to happen with the rest of it. But yeah, that's the issue we are facing now. North Queensland farmer Giovanni Galati finishing that story by Landline's Helena Bachkovsky. And you can watch Helena's full story on ABC iView. Just search for Landline. To WA Southwest now, freediver Peter Wissink struggled with a crippling fear of the ocean after his father died. Now he's known around town as the man who saves people's precious items when they're accidentally dropped off Australia's longest jetty. Amelia Searson has this story from Bustleton. When Peter Wissink dives into the clear blue waters off the Bustleton jetty, you would never think that less than a year ago he was battling an intense fear of the ocean. It was almost to a point where the phobia of the ocean was impacting on my life. Like I couldn't hang out with friends at the beach. I couldn't swim for recreation. And now I have all that back. Growing up, 
Peter spent a lot of time fishing and swimming with his dad, who was a keen spear fisherman in the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales. But after moving to a landlocked part of South Australia as a teenager and tragically losing his father, Peter developed anxiety. It made him feel scared of the thing he'd treasured so much as a child. It wasn't until last year, when the now 22-year-old moved to the coastal town of Bustleton in WA's southwest, that he decided to get back into the water. I picked up snorkelling. It was terrifying. But for some reason, I was incredibly persistent about seeing fish again. And a lot of the times I'll be at the jetty getting ready for a dive and I look back to the shore and I'm kind of in shock that a year ago I could barely be in chest deep water. The Bustleton Jetty, where Peter freedives nearly every day, is the longest timber jetty in the Southern Hemisphere, making it a major tourism drawcard for the region. But with more visitors to the jetty comes a greater chance of items being accidentally dropped into the ocean. Recently, a young woman who'd just finished a jog along the jetty jumped into the water to cool off, not realising her car keys had fallen out of her pocket and sunk straight to the bottom. Luckily, Peter was close by. I was geared up in like a couple seconds, there was no hassle. And I hopped in, I took a big inhale, dove down to the seafloor. It only took me around 20 seconds of scanning to see uh, this singular key. So I swam over to it and held it up above my head as I was surfacing. And immediately you could see the relief on her face and cheers from people. It's not the first time Peter's saved someone's belongings from the ocean's depths. He's retrieved countless watches, AirPods, phones, keys and drone remotes. Last winter, during rough and windy conditions, he rescued a fishing rod worth about $400. The second I surfaced with the rod, it's like their outlook on the day completely shifted. They were just over the top of the world. Peter says being able to relieve people's stress when they drop things overboard has helped him through his own anxiety battles. I'd almost call it a bit of healing. The fact someone who's lived that can make a change for someone else, for some reason it also gives me a sense of security as well in myself, you know, that I'm worth something. When he's not saving people's fishing rods and phones, Peter often fills up mesh bags with rubbish from the seafloor. He says seeing the litter fills him with grief. To you, it's just a piece of rubbish, it doesn't matter. But that'll end up in the stomach of a fish, in the stomach of a stingray or shark. And it it just comes down to thinking of the bigger picture. Sophie Teed is the environment manager at the Bustleton Jetty. She also spends a fair amount of time retrieving people's belongings from the ocean. It actually happens quite regularly, more than you would think. People drop all sorts of things through either through the cracks in the jetty or peering over the edge to have a closer look and, and their sunnies go over. So it's quite a picturesque location, so phones often slip out of people's hands over the side. Sophie says while accidents happen people need to clean up after themselves. When things are dropped into the ocean, if it's litter, it just stays there. Where it's dropped down, if it's heavy enough to sink to the seabed, that's where it will remain for quite a long time. We do find things that are months or even years old in the ocean. There's lots of stories of candy wrappers washing up on the beach from the 70s and 80s. For Peter, protecting the underwater world and its marine life helps him feel closer to his dad. 
even before you penetrate the surface of the water, just laying on top, you're surrounded by colours, orange, blue, yellow, green, pink, basically anything you can imagine. But when you progress to the point where you're diving down, the outside world almost shuts off. It's also a place for connection that I don't really feel anywhere else. In the more recent months, as I've improved my free diving, where I'm within inches of fish and I watch them dig in front of my face and hunt in front of me, I'd call it spiritual. I lost my dad when I was 12 or 13, and his connection to the ocean was huge. And to some extent, connecting with animals almost feels like part of me and him at the same time. Amelia Searson with that story from Bustleton in WA's southwest. And finally here on Australia Wide, they grew up playing rugby league in their tiny villages back home in Papua New Guinea. Now a group of young men are preparing to grace the footy fields in Australia with hopes of one day representing their proud country. Aaron Kelly has their inspiring tale of faith, family and footy. Shy and softly spoken, a group of footballers from Papua New Guinea are finding their voices on the rugby league field in Australia. Rockhampton's Brown Park in central Queensland is a long way from the paddocks in their tiny villages back home where they grew up playing. Now I came here to study, but then found out that I can play rugby league, so (laughs) 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 yeah, I put study on pause and uh, continue in rugby league. That's Zev John, who hails from the Western Highlands province in PNG. Zev and three of his fellow countrymen will line up for the Central Queensland Capras in this year's Queensland Cup. It's a semi-professional rugby league competition in Australia that provides a pathway for players to reach the National Rugby League, also known as the NRL. And ultimately, Zev says, the chance to represent his homeland on the international stage. People back at home love their rugby league back at home, so to play for our country is something special. It means so much to us and our family and the whole tribe we come from, so we represent our family, our tribe and everyone. Rugby league is so widely loved in the Pacific nation that it's the country's national sport. In fact, it's a religion to most. Yeah, it's like a religion to us. Everywhere you go, you'll see like people, young boys playing footy and yeah, it's like religion to us boys. Meet 22-year-old Bobby Tenza, who has already been nicknamed the New Guinea Express by his teammates. Family, Faith and Footy have brought Bobby and Zev together, along with Samuel Yajip and Kaya Ross. Bobby says he's dreamed of wearing a PNG Kumuls jersey from a young age. It means a lot. It means a lot to me because this Kumuls jersey is like what I've dreamed of and my family would like want me to see me wearing this jersey so yeah very happy and hook out for rugby league lover lyle baker is part of the capra's coaching support staff he is also a mentor and host of the club's png contingent and is more affectionately known as papa lyle to the group well they just all seem to come to my place due to the fact of you know i like traveling and like having the different learning about different cultures and they've just sort of gravitated towards my house and they seem to like it there i must make them feel welcome and coming from a different country just arriving in Rocky and showing them ways to do things the correct way without getting into trouble. 
Lyle says the humble quartet are doing their families and culture proud. Back home they're all family orientated and they all, all, all of them remember where they come from because they, they all know how lucky they are here and with the other guys here they all mingle in very well with them and they're all characters in their own right and uh, all, the boys, all the boys find them very funny and gravitate to them and they, they love them. One of them is Samuel, a gentle giant with a smile even bigger. Yeah, we got heaps of families, uh, like, yeah, PSG community around here. Cabras is a very good, like, club, sort of locals, and we pretty much love them, like, all the boys and staffs, and they are very friendly and make us feel at home, like, back in PNC. So it's, yeah, it's part of our, like, I, I feel like I'm part of the community and part of the team. From humble beginnings back home to an opportunity of a lifetime. When you see them up there, they play in paddocks, basically cow paddocks, and it's just amazing. And they have big crowds turn out. That's Lyle Baker from the Central Queensland Capras, ending that story from Aaron Kelly. And that is Australia Wide for this Monday. I'm Alex Hyman. Thanks so much for your company. I'll be back again with you tomorrow. I hope you have a wonderful evening. Cheerio. ABC Listen.